0: And I'd love to invite you to stand if you are able as I read from Matthew 7, one through five. Judge not that you be not judged, for with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure that you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there is the log in your own eye. You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye." This is the word of the Lord. Now I'd like to invite Aaron up and pray for him. Lord, thank you for my brother Aaron. Thank you for giving him the gift of teaching and preaching I pray for him as he communicates your word to us this morning, give him the right words to say, and give us the right hearts to listen and learn this morning. Amen.
1: Amen. Well, thank you, Matt. I was just telling Bobby um, before we started the gathering this morning, I just enjoy looking out and seeing all my friends on a Sunday morning. Uh, It warms my heart. So, I don't know. that's the mood I'm in today. <clears throat> but uh, next week, next week is the Super Bowl, right? Uh, and if you've watched a football game before, then you will probably know how to answer this question. Don't worry, it's not even a question about football, it's like just a question about like watching football. So you have, when the teams get ready to kick their extra point, their field goal, you get this nice shot of the end zone and the people who sit there. Uh, and usually, you'll see three different signs that people are holding up that they've made out of poster board or whatever. One of them, you know, if you're rooting for the team that's kicking, you're going to see the target sign right here, right down the middle. We want you to make the kick. It's good. And then someone else will hold up the, the other sign. They're rooting against that team. It's the arrow. We want you to kick it off one side or the other. Uh, no good. But then there's usually a third sign in the end zone. usually has a Bible verse reference written on it. What's that verse? There you go. John 3.16. You nailed it. Now, John 3.16, it may well be the most popular scripture reference in our culture. Maybe of all time. I don't know. Whether you're a lifelong follower of Jesus, whether you're a new Christian, or whether you're just a frequent football watcher, you've probably heard or seen someone reference John 3.16, even if you don't know what John 3.16 says. What I want to suggest to you this morning is that while John 3.16 is the most popular scripture reference, it may not be the most popular, in terms of being quoted, actual Bible verse in our culture. I believe that title actually should go to our passage this morning in Matthew, specifically verse 1, judge not that you be not judged. And when I say most culturally quoted, I'm not just talking about people who are not Christians or outside of the church. Judge not or don't judge for so many people, so many of us in a pluralistic society, Christians included, is like a core value. It's a cultural ethos. It's kind of the the highest of moral imperatives. And so on the flip side, any kind of judgment-making is seen as a deadly sin. So it's important that we understand this verse, and not just this verse, but all of what Jesus is saying here as well. What is he saying? What is he not saying? What what does he expect of us? What does he rebuke in us? And what we'll see together this morning is this. Jesus explicitly condemns our hypercritical, hypocritical, condemnation of others. Jesus condemns our hypercritical, hypocritical condemnation of others. Why is that important? Why do each and every one of us need to hear Jesus' words today? I think it's probably pretty simple. You and me, we love to judge. We love it. So many times, we live for it. We're waiting for a moment to pounce on someone with our judgments. And then at the same time, we're terrible at it. We're so terrible at it. We love judging, yet we make perilously poor judges. So let's get into our passage. Jesus begins by saying, Judge not that you be not judged. Now, I don't know exactly why... uh, Our translation opted for this syntax maybe to maintain some of that classic King James-y judge not, lest ye be judged vibe. Uh, But what Jesus is saying here straightforwardly is this. Don't judge others if you would like to avoid judgment yourself. Those first few words, those are the, the crux of the command. Don't judge others. And the key word we need to understand this morning is that word judge. What does it mean to judge? What does it look like to judge? It may be a little bit more nuanced than it might appear, because if you were to flip over in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians 2.15, you would read this verse. The spiritual person judges all things, but is himself to be judged by no one. Hmm. Kind of interesting. In one verse, Jesus' followers, we have a command not to judge. In another verse, we have a command to judge literally everything. So what is this? Is this a case of pitting Jesus against Paul? No, not so fast. Remember, all of Scripture is inspired by God's Holy Spirit. That means both of these commands are authoritative and instructive for you and I. And we don't get to take the easy way out either, cherry-picking these verses based on the circumstances we find ourselves in. We don't get to go around judging with our finger pointing to 1 Corinthians and then deflecting, resisting judgment, pointing to Matthew 7. Rather, what might appear on its surface to be a contradiction is actually an invitation to look more deeply into God's Word so that we can learn God's ways. What does the Holy Spirit mean or not mean when he tells us through Matthew not to judge? Likewise, what does the Holy Spirit mean and not mean when he tells us through Paul to judge everything? When we compare commands like this, you know we should always start small and work our way out into the broader context. In this case have to start with the specific words that Jesus and Paul use in their respective commands. Now, usually, I try not to get too deep into some of this nitty-gritty stuff in the actual Sunday morning sermon because, honestly, it can sometimes be more confusing than helpful. But because this single word is at the center of two seemingly opposite commands, and because this word judge is such a weighty word an important concept in our culture, I want to take the time to show you the work, show you some of the work. So remember, our Bibles, they're originally written in a different language, ancient Greek. So in Matthew 7, Jesus uses this word when he says don't judge, kreno, kreno. Don't kreno. What does kreno mean when Jesus says it? It means to judge in a legal sense, along with a corresponding condemnation and punishment. A judgment. You can almost think about it like a sentencing. In the broader context of Jesus' sermon, this should make sense to us. Because so far in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus has taught us to uh, come to terms quickly with your accuser while you're going with him to court lest your accuser hand you to the judge and the judge to the guard and you be put in prison. As well as teaching us to pray, Father, forgive our debts as we have forgiven our debtors. Remember, in Jesus' day, debt did not just have um, financial implications, but legal ones as well. They didn't have a, a bankruptcy process like we do today. If you couldn't pay your debts, you were thrown in prison or forced into slavery until you could work off your debt. What about Paul then? What is he saying to the Corinthian Christians? Well, he uses a different but related Greek word, anachrono, anachrono. The spiritual person should anachrono all things. What does anachrono mean? And how is it different from a regular chrono? Maybe you can hear that prefix there at the beginning, anachrono. It means again or between. What Paul's telling the Corinthian church is that they are able to and ought to judge between things. Look at them again closely to evaluate and discern. Discern matters that are presented to them based on the wisdom that comes from the Holy Spirit. Which, again, in the broader context of 1 Corinthians, should make sense. Paul's telling the church that the gospel they believe in looks like foolishness to the rest of the world. They say, a crucified Christ? Ridiculous. Christ's are supposed to be conquerors. But it's only when we have the Holy Spirit living in our hearts that we can look again at the gospel and say, of course, of course it had to be that way. It only makes sense that the Messiah would give his life for the people. It's utterly beautiful, and it's perfectly consistent with God's promises. And just one more side note, Paul later goes on in that same letter to talk about how the church relates to the world around them, and he says this, what have I to do with judging outsiders? God judges those outside the church, and he uses that same word that Jesus does. Crino. it's not my job, it's not our job to legally sentence and execute punishment against those that don't know God. That's his job. So, looking at these two passages, doing a deep dive into these two words, what have we learned? What is judging? What is judging not? Well, judge not does not mean apathy or Amorality. Judge not does not mean an inability to identify something as sinful, impure, or unholy. The whole book of Proverbs is about the pursuit of wisdom, knowing good from wrong, knowing right from wrong in the world. We'll see in next week's sermon passage, Jesus says this, do not give dogs what is holy And do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. That sounds a lot like what our culture would call a judgment, if I've ever heard one. In order to know who or what Jesus is referring to, we have to be able to discern, to evaluate, and in that sense to judge who, what, where pigs and dogs mean in our world. Another side note pray for your preacher next week as they prepare that sermon. It's a confusing verse to understand and apply, even compared to some of our other Sermon on the Mount passages. But anyway, with that said, we often might encounter this response. Hey, don't judge me. Who are you to judge? When we talk to people about culturally sensitive issues. But I want to assure you, reassure you maybe, that when you're having that conversation with your coworker, or your family member or your neighbor you can identify what the Bible has called right and what the Bible has called wrong. Well the Bible tells us that every human is made in God's image even those humans who aren't born yet so yeah in almost every case abortion is probably wrong or you know God tells us in his word that his family is global and multi-ethnic. So the way you treat immigrants in our community and talk about people of different races, that is sinful. Or the Bible teaches us that men and women are only to express their sexuality towards one another in the context of marriage. Anything outside those bounds is going against God's design. The gospel of Jesus demands your full and undivided allegiance, so the ways you view your relationship with your own earthly government fall short of faithfulness to him. Church, those are not the kinds of judgments that Jesus is warning us against, judgments that acknowledge sin and point to righteousness. So then, what are the kinds of judgments that Jesus speaks against? Let's continue to look at what he says. Verses one and two. Judge not that you be not judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. At its heart, Jesus' command centers around the relationship between judgment and mercy. Judgment and mercy. Jesus condemns our unmerciful, hypercritical judgment of our brothers and sisters. We see again, yet again, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus returns to this principle of reciprocity when it comes to mercy and judgment. Earlier, we saw in the Beatitudes, blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. In the Lord's Prayer, Jesus taught his disciples to pray that we receive God's forgiveness the way we have shown forgiveness to others. Here, he affirms that we will be judged in the same way that we judge others. And in a few weeks, we'll look at The golden rule, what you wish others would do to you, do also to them. Now I know, reciprocity can be difficult for us to process as uh, reformed Protestants. We so often confuse reciprocity with repayment or the idea of earning, and yet we know that it is impossible to earn God's grace. But Jesus and the rest of his culture, they didn't have that kind of baggage. From the Bible's perspective, grace is given as a totally free gift. It can't be earned. It always comes first. And it must be responded to. It must be responded to. And the proper response is faith or allegiance. The expectations are expanded into those other realms of generosity and reciprocity. When grace is given, the recipient must respond with faithfulness. When mercy is shown, the recipient must be merciful. When forgiveness is extended, the recipient must respond by extending forgiveness. When judgments are rendered, the standard is established and must be applied impartially our reciprocity, it reflects an inward heart transformation. It's almost kind of a paying it forward kind of attitude. I said this in December when we were looking at um, Jesus' teachings about generosity. I said, we're only saved by God's grace. We're not saved by our forgiving of others. We're not saved by our own judgments. But Jesus gives us another litmus test. If we don't forgive the way Jesus forgave, if we don't judge graciously like Jesus judges us, then it's possible, maybe even probable, that we have not experienced that forgiveness, that grace, that generosity. Karis, that's as true today in 2023 as it was at the end of 2022 as it was 2,000 years ago. What does this hypercritical, unmerciful judgment look like? Well, in our personal relationships, it often is reflected in attitudes of bitterness and grudge holding. Maybe your spouse or your boss or your friend or your classmate has done something that hurts or offends you, something that has harmed the relationship and the way you relate in some way. Maybe there's something in need of fixing around your house. You ask your roommate or your spouse to address the problem. One of your employees, one of your coworkers, is supposed to be helping you with a big project and they drop the ball in a big way. Because of their wrong action or their inaction, they've caused an even larger problem to arise. They apologize and you roll your eyes. It happens, I guess. But in your heart, you start to develop a grudge. Bitterness builds up inside you towards them. You don't bring up the incident anymore, but you're constantly looking for small ways to punish them. Well, he dropped the ball on calling the dishwasher repairman, so I'm not touching a single dish. That's his problem to worry about. She forgot to communicate those initial details with the client so uh, I get to throw her under the bus every time there's a hiccup. They didn't do their part in the group project, so on our next assignment, I'm going to make them pay. I'm going to find a way to pawn off all my work onto them. Church, when we have this attitude, we become the judges that Jesus warns us about. In a spiritually sick and relationally destructive way, we continue to invent new ways to be unmerciful and hypercritical. Church family, do not judge that way because there's no way that you or I could withstand those judgments where they aim back at us. <clears throat> this also means, as Christians, we don't judge one another as heretics when it comes to second or third order doctrines of our faith. Things like leadership structures and who fills pastoral roles, those are really important, and the Bible has a lot to say about those things. But we can't immediately look at another church that does things different from us and write them off as brothers and sisters. The Bible has a lot to say about the creation and the culmination of our world in Genesis and Revelation, but that doesn't mean we get to Judge and think less of our brothers and sisters who disagree with us. Think of them as lesser Christians because when we look at the passages, we add up the numbers and have slightly different answers. We unify around the identity and the work of our God, the gospel, the scriptures, some of those core elements of our faith like we read in the Apostles' Creed earlier. And then we do our best to understand and apply those scriptures. The kind of unmerciful, hypercritical judgment is also reflected in our social and political relationships as well. Often to the detriment of our broader world. On a social level, um, the the way that uh, cancel culture can really function is a good example of this. Groups on social media might sift through the data to find a point where a public figure uh, is deemed to fall short of ideological purity. Now, this is not to excuse real sinful ideas and statements that people make. Like I said above, biblical judgments include identifying sin and standing for righteousness. But how does a cancel culture respond in these scenarios? Not with a heart towards redemption and restoration, but with shunning and exile and perpetual judgment. There's no room for mercy in a cancel culture. Similarly, on a political level, I saw a popular commentator pop up in the last couple weeks um, on Twitter, a guy who you know calls himself a Christian. Uh, he was going on and on about how nice the airports in Singapore were. And the reason that we can't have such nice public amenities in our culture is because, quote, they execute drug dealers by hanging and even arrest petty vandals and thieves and beat them with a cane until they bleed. We don't have nice things because we aren't willing to do what is required to maintain them. Can I say for a third time, church, not to minimize or dismiss real sins like theft and property damage? Biblical judgment requires calling sin what it is. And, simultaneously, we have to be led by the Spirit to resist our own sinful instinct to judge without mercy, to judge with harshness or brutality or with utter irreversibility. Jesus condemns our hypercritical judgments. But not just that. Jesus condemns our hypocritical judgments. We see in these next two verses maybe the greatest sermon illustration of all time. Verses three and four. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there is a log in your own eye? If Jesus and his family were indeed carpenters and woodworkers, then he speaks here out of what is um, an exaggeration of his own personal experience with the speck and log talk. Imagine Jesus' brothers out working in the shop. James, he's chiseling away on some project. Jude's got the saw out. He's wrapping up his part of the project and, you know, knocking the sawdust off everything. And then, ah, oh. Everything okay, bro? Yeah, yeah, just got this little speck of sawdust in my eye. Can't quite seem to get it out. You guys know how it is. Oh, here, I gotcha, let me, let me take that speck out of your eye. Jude turns around towards James for help. He's gotta duck out of the way because he just about got knocked upside the head with a two by four. Dude, what is that? Is, is that board? Dude, it's lodged in your eye. What are you talking about? Get back over here. I'm trying to help you with that spec. I don't think so. Don't touch me. (laughs) The illustration sticks with us because it's so extreme, it's so over the top. Most of us here, you know, we're not carpenters or contractors. Uh, What would that look like for the rest of us? We've got a lot of folks who are uh, working the medical profession. Maybe you tell the nurse, you know, you want to help double check. Uh, the charting, make sure all the information's on the right patient's chart. She responds, wait, aren't, aren't you the one with the big malpractice suit against you? Maybe you're one of the many folks in our city who works in the home loan business. You decide you have to decline someone's loan because they only have a, a fair 660 credit score. Meanwhile, you're strutting around town at 375. 375. Maybe you're a student, you have to write papers according to this meticulous style guide that they make you buy. You're you're proofreading your roommate's paper. Notice that in her footnotes, she used a comma where she should have used a semicolon. kidding me? You better cite those sources or it'll show up as plagiarism. You're giving her a hard time, but just the other day you were bragging to your buddy about how you got chat GPT to write your whole midterm for you. Okay, one more, just one more. Some of our dear brothers and sisters here at Karst, they're moguls in the gourmet popcorn industry. Imagine I go out to Fulton, I pick up some delicious snap cheddar popcorn, and I hear some arguing from upstairs where they're making the popcorn, where they're popping the corn. Hey man, get back over here real quick. You got one of those little like, corn kernel, husks like, next to your eye. Oh, yeah? Who do you think you are? You got the whole cob stuck in your eye. <laughs> the humor helps to make Jesus' ultimate point. Who are we to judge our brothers and sisters in their struggles when we have our own, often worse struggles than the people we criticize? The problem is, though, the logs in our eyes blind us to their very presence. Sin has a sinister way of keeping itself hidden from the sinner. Perhaps the best example of this in the Bible is none other than King David, when he is confronted with his sin by the prophet Nathan. Let's look at 2 Samuel chapter 12 together. And the Lord sent Nathan to David. He came to him and said, But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. And David's anger was greatly kindled against the man, the rich man. And he said to David, as the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die. And he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and because he had no pity. Famously, Nathan says back to David, you... Are the man. You're the rich man. You see, just before this confrontation, King David had kidnapped and committed adultery with one of his own soldiers' wives while he was off at battle. Then he had the soldier murdered to cover it all up. As he listened to Nathan's story, he saw the speck of covetousness and greed in the eye of the rich man. He was furious. How dare he take advantage of and abuse that poor man? Yet the log lodged in his own eye blinded him to the lust, the adultery, and the murder in his own life. It's often the sins that we struggle with the most, blind to them or not, that we tend to judge with the least compassion, right? My wife, Caitlin, she works in a business networking organization in town. It's really fun. I get to go to a lot of um, you know, social events with her, uh, networking stuff around the city. And a few times, I've, I've run to this person who's um, very, very pleasant and fun to be around. I like this person. But sometimes they rub me the wrong way a little bit. I leave these interactions uh, feeling as if this person tends to take up all the oxygen of the conversation, make themselves the star of the show. And it took me until kind of recently to figure out why that bothered me so much. The reason is that when I look in the mirror, I have a log in my own eye because that's one of my favorite ways to act in conversation. Jesus warns us that we're in no position to be removing sawdust specks when we're full of rotten wood. But pay attention to that last verse, verse five. You hypocrite. First, take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Jesus doesn't even decry all speck-related assistance. It's the hypercritical, hypocritical speck condemning. Quite the opposite. Once our logs are removed, we are instructed to assist our brothers and sisters It's part of the job of the church. We talk about church membership this morning. Uh, One of the purposes of church membership is that we have a family around us, and we say, when you see the speck in my eye, get it out for me. We don't bludgeon our brothers and sisters, but we serve them by doing delicate surgery on their sin. If I'm blind to something as large as a log how much more something as small as a speck. We need to get the specks out of each other's eyes as we offer the very same mercy and compassion that we ourselves need. Karis Church, you and I are not naturally qualified to act as judges. Our sin binds us, and then it blinds us to both justice and mercy. Can I tell you something important? Jesus is the only one fit to judge fully and finally. Jesus is the only one fit to judge fully and finally. But can I tell you something amazing? Jesus, the only just judge, came to offer forgiveness and freedom. We see Jesus lead us through his words, but even more through his example. In John 8, we read the famous story of the woman who was caught in adultery. Let me read it. Early in the morning, he came again to the temple. All the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery. And placing her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now, the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. What do you say? and Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. Did you see that? Did you see that? Anna Crino. Discernment and identification. Go and sin no more. That thing that you did, adultery, that sin, stop destroying your life and the life of your family. And simultaneously, a notable lack of crinol, legal judgment and execution of punishment. In this case, the literal punishment of execution. Where are your accusers? Has no one stayed around to condemn you, then I won't either. Church family, I know that for some of you here, your hearts are heavy, they're full of guilt, they're full of shame. You know what you've done in your life, and you've judged yourself harshly. Others know what you've done, and they've judged you without mercy. You know full well that Jesus is the only just judge, but you're also struggling to believe that he is actually offering forgiveness and freedom. To borrow a a line from author and activist Shane Claiborne, the only one with any moral authority to throw stones has absolutely no desire to. Judge not. Because your judgment has already been served by someone else. Carus, Jesus himself took your guilt and your shame when He died in your place. He didn't deserve it, but in him, all sin was judged. It was condemned and punished perfectly. As he hung on that old cross made of wood, he made a way to remove every board and beam every log and plank, every speck and splinter from our eyes so that we could see him and behold him truly. Car's Church, behold Jesus. Put your faith in him. Pledge your life and your allegiance to him. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word to us this morning whether we've heard it a million times or this was the first time, sink it deep into our hearts. Cure us of our hypocrisy. Cure us from being unmerciful. Jesus, we praise you today. It's you who took our place on the cross. You heal our hearts. You heal our eyes. May we follow your lead and your example. Continue to lead us so that we may love you and be faithful to your commands. Holy Spirit, as we continue to worship this morning, grant us unity around the table, unity with you and with one another. Soften our hearts, soften our hard and judgmental hearts. Amen.